Alrighty, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to another episode of Monday Madness. As always, it is myself, Tavis, today, October the 12th, and I carved a pumpkin yesterday, and I gotta say, I'm very doubtful it's going to make it to Halloween, so time will tell. Who knows? Maybe I'll carve another pumpkin, but really, it was just in the spirit of the season, but come on. You didn't come here for Halloween tips and tricks. You didn't come here to see what I carved. You came here for the news. So, WTI, as we always start off, 39.47, a little bit of a dip. We saw some pretty big jumps last week, but things settled down, and now they're actually settling down into the $39 range. It seems like China and many other places are experiencing more infections, and so people seem to be afraid that another round of decreased fuel demand can be coming, especially considering the inventory report, but we'll get to that soon. Next, rig count, 269, up three on the week, but still down 587 on the year. It is good for now, but like I just mentioned, things have been getting a little bit worse in some cases, and I would not be surprised if we saw this decrease around a month from now. We've been doing really well for the past probably month and a half, going zero to positive with almost no rig decreases in that time, but I'm skeptical. I don't think it'll last that long. And then as for the inventories, the last EIA report was 10 days ago, so if you didn't catch last week's episode of Monday Madness, then the big news is that there was about a half million barrel build. Not terrible, but also not that good. Definitely scaring investors, especially when pairing it with those combined uh, COVID fears that I mentioned just previously. So, in terms of news stories, the strike is over. Oh, you didn't hear? Well, there were some very unhappy workers in Norway who decided that they wanted better wages. How'd they do it? Hey, the good old-fashioned strike starting on September 30th. The group in question was the Ledern Trade Union, who refused to accept new pay terms for offshore workers. Most other people had no problem, but this union specifically did not want to take the terms. After escalating things on the 5th, 8% of Norway's oil and gas production had been shut in. That's about 330,000 barrels of oil equivalent per day, which really is about 60% gas. Four separate fields in the North Sea under Equinor's control were shut down, and if no agreement was to be reached by midnight this morning, the union threatened to shut in 25% of the entire country's production. When you put it like that, it really emphasizes just how serious the situation was, and just how serious those workers were for more pay. If I'm not mistaken, Norway is structured in a way that allows 50% state interest in every play after the previously nationalized company Statoil, again taking a little more than other companies would like to see. So because of this distribution of vested interests, the strike holds enough power to stop the entire industry. A good part of unions? Well, workers get a voice through an organization that will represent them. The bad part of unions? Workers can gain an immense amount of power and negotiate huge deals in terms of wage and employment, especially when they threaten to shut in 25% of the country's production. Now, Norway had two options, right? refuse and let production slump until they could recruit new employees who would accept the wage conditions, or give in and renegotiate the wages. Well, this weekend, Norwegian oil firms gave in, fearful of losing 25% of their daily production, and the workers got the wages they wanted. The new wage bargain should hopefully please these people and prevent about 1 million barrels of daily production from being removed. Talk about some drama. Next story involves a little company called Energy Transfer LP. So you may have heard of them on this podcast or elsewhere, really. Their most notable, or perhaps controversial, 
project is likely the Dakota Access Pipeline, which has struggled for years now fighting at every stage of construction and operation. It has to get tedious at some point, and perhaps this is why billionaire investor Kelsey Warren has stepped down from his CEO position. Even though he will no longer be involved in the C-suite, he plans to remain on the board and offer his funding to continue further projects. He's got a lot to offer too, considering his net worth is in the neighborhood of $3 billion. The transition from day-to-day employee to loaded board member is not an uncommon one. Consider Rich Kinder of Kinder Morgan. Today, he's only a chairman after relinquishing the CEO title in 2015. Still more have also exercised a similar move, and I like seeing that the people remain involved throughout the timeline that has been the 2010s up until 2020. It would be very easy to take your money and get the hell out of there. But remaining on the board is a move I admire, and probably a move that those people want to pursue as they keep their hands in some sort of project, funding, or business. So congrats to Kelsey Warren on the transition, and good luck to Energy Transfer, as they will likely have their plates full in the next year, regardless of who takes the CEO position or what president is elected. Next up, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration recognized the start of 2020 Atlantic hurricane season on June 1st of this year, which was a while back, and predicted it would run through to the end of November. Although we are very close to that end of November, the Gulf of Mexico is getting absolutely pummeled by vicious weather. The Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement estimates that 92% of oil production and 62% of gas production has been shut in. All of these figures have been calculated using previous reports that were submitted from operators before the storms had really hit the Gulf. As of now, 273 platforms have been evacuated, along with 7 of the 10 non-dynamically positioned rigs. As per usual, as soon as the storms pass through, the Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement will make sure to inspect these rigs and then clear them before operation may start again. That's just a little mini-update on the Gulf for you. Let's go ahead and move on to the next. And the next thing I would like to talk about is France, and I honestly think this is new territory for the podcast. Not a lot of conflict here, and things are generally under control, but we will be talking about their exports and the related government support, or, now, lack thereof. France has announced that the state export guarantees that normally existed for oil and gas projects are going to be done for. So, they will certainly halt for sale next year, all oil in 2025, and gas in 2035. That is zero, nada, no more support for guaranteed exports. The finance ministry dropped this bomb recently, which was a shock to many operators in the area. The export guarantees were absolutely crucial for some companies, allowing them to establish a guaranteed income that they could use when asking a bank for credit. Those involved with any form of hydraulic fracturing, flaring, and coal will have to do their best to sort things out by 2021 if this proposal passes. If that wasn't enough, a new proposal that passed will lump heavy oil, shale oil, and bitumen oil sands into the same category, which would affect the creation of some 700 jobs in the region. Once 2025 hits, export guarantees will no longer be provided for new oil fields, that's 1,800 jobs down the drain, and by 2035, the same will be true for natural gas, say bye-bye to another 3,000 jobs. The only reason natural gas isn't getting axed before 2035 is because France wants to support countries during their transition to cleaner energy. So rather than burning fossil fuels or coal, third world or developing nations will have the ability to, well, hopefully purchase gas from France. Or So that's their idea. And maybe this wasn't a move made out of the desire for green energy. Let's consider the past 10 years. 
The government has extended export guarantees worth $5.3 billion to oil and gas industries, with 60% of that total still outstanding back in May. And if I had to put some money on it, that would still be the case today. So it makes sense that maybe this isn't in the name of green energy, but rather two birds, one stone, where they can secure their own finances and limit the amount of money that they pay out to oil and gas companies as they transition. Now, big companies like Total have not requested export guarantees for some of their massive projects, but the little guys operating in that area will be in a bad place come, well, anywhere from half a year to 15, depending on whatever their project they choose if this proposal does go through. So that is all I have for you today. Thanks for tuning in again. Sorry if it sounds a little quiet. I'm working from home. I'm not sure if my roommate's still asleep right now. Hell, I'm not sure if my upstairs or next door neighbors that I share walls with are asleep right now. So sorry if it seemed a little low energy. I I hope that you did learn something. And if you didn't, be sure to email me and complain. I love to receive complaints. I love reading through them because it actually allows me to make the podcast a little bit better for you. So you can leave reviews or contact me directly at podcast at rarepetro.com. And until we see you next time, take care, everybody.